Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, musicians, and rock fans talk about a different rock album each week. I'm your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavigan. I'm Dave O'Leary. And we're happy to have you as a guest again, Dave. Um, you weren't around for the Shout at the Devil uh, podcast, but I know that you you caught Motley when they opened for Kiss on the Creatures of the Night tour. So before we jump into Theater of Pain, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what it was like seeing those guys at that time. Yeah, as, as I was explaining uh, off off tape, it's, you know, over the years seeing Kiss uh, starting in, in the, the 1976, you know, Kiss exposed me to a lot of bands that I wouldn't otherwise have been exposed to that are now legendary in their own right. And, you know, Bob Seger, Cheap Trick, um, ACDC, Judas Priest, Queens Reich, but uh, certainly Motley Crue was one of the highlights of that. And see, it, I think that was, heck, 82-ish, yeah, somewhere in there, 82 or maybe 83. On the Christians of the Night Tour, they, uh, Kiss came through the Aladdin Theater here in Las Vegas, and um, the support act on that was Motley Crue. And I, I had no, really, I had no idea at that point in time really who they were. Uh, but I did know from being a fan for as long as I've been a fan of Kiss is to, is to be open-minded to the, the opening acts because they were so good on so many occasions. And, and this was, certainly was no different. They reminded me um, when they came on, they reminded me of that kind of that, that mysterious band that I, I fell in love with around 1974, uh, Kiss with the Hot <laughs> and Hell album. Um, they brought a lot of that energy and that mystique, um, that young kind of aggressiveness, uh, lack of a better way to put it. Uh, they were very, very hungry. It was very, very clear they were very hungry at that point. And I knew seeing them, you know, within the first couple minutes that there was certainly a lot of uh, influence from a band like Kiss, but they were very much their own entity. And that really came through. And uh, I thought they, were, they did a fantastic show. And uh, probably wasn't too long after that that I had uh, a self-titled album and, and uh, and then the uh, Shout of the Devil album. And two, to this day, two albums that are still um, among my all-time favorite records. So fresh off the success of multi-platinum sales for Shout at the Devil, uh, Motley Crue goes back into the studio uh, from January to May of 1985 at Pasha Music House, Cherokee Studios, and the record plant West. Uh, they reunite with producer Tom Werman. Dwayne Barron is engineering, and the album comes out June 21st, 1985. And my memories of this time is that Motley Crue was such a hot band, people were so hungry for new Motley music because it had been two years since Shout at the Devil came out that when they put out the picture disc mm. of Helter Skelter that just had a live version of Helter Skelter and a couple of songs from Too Fast for Love with the original Leather Records mixes. That was a big deal, you know, because people just wanted anything new from these guys. Um, and I really think that these guys at this point were posed to be one of the all-time great rock and roll bands in the sense of the Beatles, the Stones, you know, like a band 
that had the potential to go anywhere and do anything and take their audience along with them. Um, you know, if, if they say if, if, if Kiss was for Alice Cooper's, in a way, I think Motley was kind of like for David Bowie's, right? They had that, that thing where they were trying to reinvent themselves and take a hard left turn with every record and that's what they were trying to do with Theater of Pain. Every band in the Hollywood scene looked like them, sounded like them, and they wanted to change, change it up enough that, and go to a place where they thought nobody would, would dare follow them. But of course, the joke was on them because they went to this ultra effeminate glam rock image and everybody followed them. Um, I really think that that Nikki had a vision for where the band was going to go at this time that was grandiose. And I don't think he quite got there because of a couple of things that were going on with the band at the time. First of all, you had Vince's horrific auto, auto accident, which hung, I'm sure, like a shadow over the band and the band's future. Nobody really knew while they were trying to make this album, what the after effects of that were going to be for his future, for the band's future. And then you had Nikki Six really for the first time starting to struggle with his addiction issues. And I think that you can see in this album, he is struggling to um, reach the full potential of some of his songwriting ideas in the way that he's integrating the music and the lyrics. And I, I think there are moments of brilliance on this record, but I also think that it's an experimental record purposefully and not all of the experiments work. So what would you say about it, John? It's an interesting album because when I bought it, uh, I was super excited to have it. I remember, you know, just because it was a new Motley Crue record, completely worshiping it um, and playing it over and over again and being really into it. Um, but again, upon later listens now, um, I know that, or even, even through, you know, from my teens until now, th this is not an album I replay really much at all. Um, of Motley Crue. And I, I agree with you. I think I remember reading interviews in circus magazine where he was like, this is going to be a huge concept record and things like that. And then, it, and then it wasn't. Um, and it seems to be like there re it's, it's got a little bit of the sophomore slump kind of vibe to it, even though it isn't a sophomore slump. Um, but it's um, it just, I don't know listening to it again it just does not strike me as that great an album anymore and seems to be a lot of filler with some really great songs on it um there's it seems like they were trying but just but but fell short of what they wanted to do because i feel you're saying that they had he had a vision but at the same time they seem to be veering in different directions at least upon you know you've got a sort of a blues rock aesthetic and then you've got sort of a you know back to the Mick Mars metal you know his super great licks I, I don't know I um it's an album that I do not play really anymore even though I remember being completely obsessed with it uh when I was a teenager 
So that's what I think. Dave, your your general thoughts about the album? Well, I, I was at this point in time, I was managing uh, Odyssey Records on Las Vegas Boulevard here in Las Vegas, which was that time was the biggest record store in, in Las Vegas. And um, so I remember clearly the day it came out and, and there were a line of folks that were there to buy that record coming out of the box. Um, but I, I do remember um, some commentary from some of my coworkers at the time, because we, you know, back then the analog days you had a record player. So you put the record on, you play it for the store, right? But I, re I remember hearing pretty consistently a lot of people thinking it sounded like one album of the same song, absent Home Sweet Home. It was like the same, you know, the, it was the same song reworked. And for some reason that kind of stuck in my head until I listened to this again. And I, I have a little bit of different opinion of it now, uh, but it, there were moments on that record that I really thought were standout even back then. But like Brother John, there's a lot of that record I felt it was a swing and a, and a miss. A lot of filler. Mike, your thoughts? For me personally, it was it was a great time because I had just been learning how to play guitar, and you know I had been introduced to, to Motley Crue by a friend, uh, Chuck Baker, and he played me the you know Shout the Devil record. And I thought, oh my god, that's great! And it was almost like my Guns and Roses moment, like, oh, that's cool. What are they going to do next? And then you get Use Your Illusion, which you know is debatable. I, there's a lot of illusion that I like, and there's a lot that I don't like. For me, this record works because I could just, I was so happy to have a new Motley Crue record, you know, um, and I just embraced it because that's what it was. But only later did I determine that there were things that they were doing that were, you know, influ you know influential of other bands. Like, you know, they were, there's some Deep Purple stuff going on here. There's some, a lot of Joe Walsh, you know, slide guitar licks that are happening here, which I didn't understand at the time, but I appreciate now. Um, but I think, you know, the misfire might be, and maybe Dave, you, can, you know, Dave McRelly can do this later, I think the misfire and the misguidance might have been, you know, where were they going with the lyrical themes? You know, it, that's where there's there's no real rock anthem on this record, even though they, they might try to do that. You've got a great power ballad, but you don't have like the anthems that were on in the previous records. I think that might have been the misfire in a way. But still, as a band, they're killer players, and there's no doubt that they were killer players and they were a great band playing together. But is this a great Motley record? You know, debatable. It's up to you. But for me, I love it because of the time period that I was introduced to it. And I'll stand by it, but it's near, not nearly as good as, you know, as Shout of the Devil, but. Yeah, I just remember being loving it as a kid, but then suddenly not loving it. You know what I mean? Like not coming back to it. It's funny. I actually listen to this album more now, I think, because I've, I've burnt out on Too Fast for Love and Shout of the Devil because I've heard those albums a million times. As much as I love them and I think they're better mm -hmm. albums, this album kind of sounds like a breath of fresh air when I put it on because I haven't listened to these songs 10 million times. A um, couple, couple notes before we get right into the song by song. Um, I was thinking about the, the the image change that they did then, and and you know it's funny. There's a picture of these guys for this album where they're all glammed out and full makeup and whatnot, all sitting together in one giant jacuzzi bubble bath, just them all in the same bathtub with no girls around, <laughs> and and. Any other context, <laughs> that would be seen as this completely homoerotic thing, right? But nobody questioned it because it was Motley Crue and, you know. Um, and then the, the other thing that I think is funny about the image, they did these, these very highly stylized gangster 
photos in which each one of them was kind of like portraying a gangster, but in full glam makeup as if they were in like the 1940s, you know, like Chinatown and, and there's Tommy with the Tommy gun and all this stuff. And they really, I mean, the, the colors are all like bright neon blue and yellow and pink kind of Duran Duran-esque colors. So this is like really when they're trying to sell the band as sex symbols over to the female market as well. Um, in terms of the concept you mentioned, John, um, two things. So Nikki read a book about the Commedia dell'arte, which was a 17th century Italian theatrical show that featured masked characters like Harlequin and the Scaramouche um, and was sort of the last remnants of that show kind of filtered down through time and in somewhat in terms of the Punch and Judy show and things like that. Um, so that was one thing. Then he also read an essay called The Theater of Cruelty um, by Artaud, which sort of theorized that the ultimate theater would be one in which everything was total overkill, in which you assault the senses of the audience, you blind them with lights, you deafen them with sound, all of your visuals don't have to make sense, but they shock you. They disorient the audience in a kind of spiritual exorcism, a magic ritual that's beyond thought and logic that takes people into their own subconscious minds unleashes their inner truths and sets them free. So that was the concept beyond, behind Theater of Pain. And I think we got a little bit of that. Yeah, I can think of examples now where that's totally part of it, but yeah, okay. Yeah, but we didn't obviously get that concept in its yeah, full no, not at all. fruition. Yeah, um, so first song, City Boy Blues. It sounds like a bar rock band doing it. I I did not like it. Um, I don't remember really liking it. And it's the opener too. Usually openers don't suck. Um, but I remember even not liking it as a kid because this, um, I had a hard time placing Motley Crue as like, really they're just dome, you know, down home country boys. Like it didn't really strike me as like a, well, Nikki did kind of grow up on the farm at his grandparents' farm. So, I mean, I, I think there is something to that. Yeah, but I didn't buy that. I don't, I, I don't, you know what I mean? Like it didn't work for me. I think it's, it's a, it's a bar rock band and there's nothing really, I'm trying to think like um, the opening lines. I mean, again, we get Nikki's really good imagery in his lyrics, you know, dog fights, or what is it? Dog bites or however he starts. Fireflies it. and is dog it? fights. Yeah. Fireflies and yeah, dog yeah. fights, you know, running hot in the heat, street noise, another bribe, things too hard to believe. Yeah. That is better than your average. This, this song could have been totally stupid, but these are moments where they're not stupid. And, but that only comes out lyrically. There's not the music, nothing in the music really grabs me because it just sounds like, you know, something I've heard a billion times before. So I, I didn't, I even remember as a kid not really liking it because it didn't sound metal. It sounded like stuff my parents listened to or not even my parents. I mean, my dad had good taste, but I'm saying like stuff that was on DVE, mm. you know, uh, you know, the classic rock station for, at that time. So again, nice imagery in the lyrics, but not a great song. Yeah. Dave. I think teacher John has been cheating off my paper because I had some of those in my notes upstairs. 
Yeah, this is this this I I don't get this song as an opening track. Uh, I remember I wrote in my notes Franken song because it seems like it's bits and pieces of other song ideas that they hobble together. Um, it just doesn't come across very well to me. Um, this is one that seems like it's a throwaway, um, maybe a demo uh, that they flushed out just a little bit. I certainly like Mick's playing. Mick is the star of this song for me. Uh, he, does some, he definitely does some great playing there, but it, his playing doesn't save this song. And, and to come out of the gate on a follow-up to the previous album, Shot the Devil, with a song this week for an, a, an opener, head scratcher. Yeah, and isn't Tom Worman the famous guy who said you start your album with your strongest track? He is that guy. He is that guy, and this is his strongest track? You know what I mean? Like, was he asleep at the switch? What was going on? Or maybe he just, well, you know. Then again, too, if you consider the strongest tracks in this record, Smoking in the Boys Room and Home Sweet Home, if you start out the gate with that, then you've got really not that much of a record, you know? You, you've got to start somewhere, right? you got to, you got to work up to it, right? And for, i got an idea for you, Bill. We'll get there. We'll okay. get to that track. We'll I think it would have been a better opener. Mike? Uh, for for me, I, I learned something this week. I, I read something, um, I believe it was in the, the Motley Crue first five years you know, biography, right? Where apparently when they were considering drum sounds for this record, uh, they referenced uh, a track by Cheat Trick, which was uh, Up the Creek, which was a, a song they did on a soundtrack. And they basically said, we want that drum sound. I don't really hear it, hmm. but I guess that was the point of reference that was used for you. Know, the drum sound, which the drum sound in this record is huge. I mean, it's, it's classic, you know, crew. But I also think that there's, you know, the difference between like, you know, your glam or your metal or, or your, what they became later when, they, when you see interviews with those guys on like MTV around the time of Dr. Feelgood, they always refer to Motley Crue as being like heavy groove in a way. Mm -hmm. So for me, riff wise, I, I bought into the song straight away because to me, it sounded like something that could have been on Aerosmith Rocks. It's, it's definitely gotten a big in Aerosmith influence for sure. Yeah, and you got that weird kind of flat fifth intro, which is cool. It's kind of metal, but then it goes into the you know the bluesy kind of riffs, and for me that works. You know, um, but also too, you know, again, I'm, I'm never like like a lyric guy, but you know, when you talk about you know Nikki's you know, experience in, in in various parts of the country, you got fireflies. You know, you, you don't really see a lot of fireflies in L.A., right? You know, if they're going to be in dogfights, so be it. You know, yeah, but then you've got a lot of, you know, street noise and you know, another bribe going on in Los Angeles. So I think he's just trying to tell a story. And it, it's up to the listener to decide what they want to, you know, believe in here. You know, I think it might be maybe even deeper than or more personal than, than, than people give it credit for. You know, it's not really the most killer. It's not a Detroit City or, you know, Shout the Devil. It's not that at all. But, you know, there have been bands, countless bands, like Fleetwood Mac, they've, you know, gone from like rumors to, Tusk and you talk about a left turn in terms of you know what you're expecting from that band you know it, it, it the record is kind of sprawling in a way it's adventurous and I like that you know it, it sounds like them but it also sounds like their influences and I think it was a you know sort of a gateway into what they were going to do later on my goal is to find an album that Mike hates no, because there's so much to appreciate. You know, because I used to be, I used to be that guy that would say that record sucks. It doesn't rock. No, and, and that's I don't want to hear it. You know, but there, you know, at the same time too, you know, Dave O'Lear mentioned too. You know, mix uh, guitar playing is probably the saving grace of the song. It's bluesy. It's great. Um, they mm -hmm. do cool things with like, um, you know, you know, doing you know the bridge which is over the intro riff. There's like a whole vocal thing that's over the bridge, which is really the intro riff. You know, it's it's clever songwriting in a way. It's well thought out. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting that they essentially start the song structurally with a bridge. With a bridge. Yeah. There's no there's no intro. They go right into the bridge, which if you think about it is the anti shot of the devil which had in the beginning and then the introduction and then the verse, you know. So so I see the song as them, you know, if you you want to go left field, this is about as left field as you can get away from that. Um I I think the song itself, I mean, it's kind of expressing this existential angst, this spiritual malaise or ennui, if you will. Um, but it feels like the stakes in the story that it's telling are fairly low and insignificant. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's one of the problems in rock and roll is once you become a super successful, rich, famous rock star, your life doesn't necessarily have a whole lot in common with the average rock fan, right? So in 1985, you know, my friends were not eating sushi, you know, <laughs> they are now, you know, in the early 21st century. But um, I think, uh, Here's an example of, of where I, I, I can see the drugs not helping Nikki mm. because, and, and this is my theory about this. I do think that drugs in the short term can be a catalyst to creativity because part of creativity is thinking outside your normal perspective and that change. But once you've got enough money to be high more or less all the time, you're no longer changing your perspective. So it's not ever going to, continue helping your creativity at that point, right? Um, so I was thinking about this today, this whole, this line about don't look to Jesus to change your seasons. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's the American true, dream. Yeah. Um, souls of gypsies, roads of stone, um, can't seem to find no peace, so head out. Those lyrics don't really make a ton of sense, like on, on the surface. But what if you change those lyrics to don't look to Jesus to change your seasons if you can't find no peace? Souls of gypsies, roads of stone, it's the American dream. Hmm. If you just juxtapose those lines, now suddenly there's a clear thought. And yeah. that's all it would have Good taken point. to make that make sense. Why didn't they do that? Well, Dave, I, I, have, I have an idea for you. I, I can see you out on Sunset Boulevard <laughs> with that lyric book right there, re reciting some of that, your version of the poetry. I know. I think you're on to something, buddy. Smoking in the boys' room. Uh, another one that I, I read, this is left over from something that Vince Neil used to do with his uh, original band before Motley Crue, uh, Rock Candy or whatever. I don't know how true that is, but it seems like it, um, I guess it was their like, first actual hit like it hit in the top 40 correct um and yeah it was first real hit or whatever um but i hit, don't yeah. i didn't particularly like it then and i don't particularly like it now um again it's i mean i get i don't know i thought it, i don't i have no idea like i can't even think of like what my reaction was when i was a teenager but hearing it again i'm like this song is a bit ridiculous you know what i mean and and um this, but again, I, I like, but at the same time, it's kind of fun, you know, so it's, it's stand it's, it's, it's standing on the fence for me. Part of me doesn't really like it. Part of me thinks it's kind of fun. Um, and it's a neat cover and it's kind of a, it, it actually, um, 
you know, it brought back a really interesting sort of obscure song um, back into the forefront. And a lot of people, I don't even think know that it's made, it's original by Brownsville station. Um, but it, it, uh, I, I can't tell whether like at, at this time in my life, I can't remember if I liked it as a kid. I remember, I mean, I think I just liked anything Motley Crue when this came out. Um, you know, and I think I was like, wow, this video's on MTV all the time and, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, I mean, it wasn't home sweet home all the time, but it was still on. Um, and I remember, you know, liking that, but now upon listening to it, it's, I don't know. I mean, it's a good cover. It's, you know, it's, it's pretty faithful to the original, um, but it doesn't stand out to me again. And I, I would have thought that it would have stood out more. Maybe there's more to it that I'm missing here, but good. Dave? I'm convinced now more than ever that John has to stay after class and explain why he was cheating off my notes. Uh, that's pretty much nails and summarizes very well my feelings about the song. Well, only I, I can tell you is it, it did hit number 16 in the U.S. charts. Um, and I wonder, you know, uh, Vince Neil's uh, version of how that song came to be aside, how much of this too was the record company at the time wanting radio hit, you know, um, hits for them. Um, that may have played into the decision to include a song like this. I don't hate the song. I didn't hate it when Brownsville Station did it. I'm old enough to remember when the original came out. It's a cool enough song to me. I think it's fun for them. You know, I, I've seen Motley Crue like you guys a bunch of times. And you know, the song goes over very, very, very well live. So they clearly know a lot of things that I don't know. There you go. So, you know, I'm not going to knock them for their choice of cover songs. They could have definitely picked a lot worse songs than this. You know, it's an okay song, not my favorite Motley Crue song, not my favorite song on the record, but it doesn't, it doesn't upset me. Yeah, it almost was almost a good choice because it wasn't like a Zeppelin song or a Kiss song or, you know what I mean? Something that, you know, they, they don't have a lot to prove by doing that song. They keep it fun, they keep it light, and there's nothing to really, you know, like how could you take the music of, of these guys? I mean, I don't think Brownsville Station put out more than like two albums, so. Although I'm probably wrong, they're probably right. like 18 and they're still touring now and they're I don't know. <laughs> they actually have a top 10 smash right yeah, now, yeah, John. Exactly. <laughs> they're coming to Pittsburgh. They're going to play that bar up the street, Carson. And they're sleeping over. No. Uh, Mike? Yeah, I, you know, I think we've talked about, you know, the album is sort of, a, it's, it's lacking in terms of a rock anthem. And this is about as close to that that they've gotten, even though it's, you know, a cover song in a way, you know, there, there are other songs on the record that might've been, you know, the, the, the attempt at like a rock anthem, you want to raise your fist and shout along. But, um, you know, much like, you know, Kiss is done with, you know, cover tunes like 2000 Man, you know, I guess more or less, you know, Ace is done, you know, in Kiss with, you know, 2000 Man, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of friends in high school that were listening to Brownsville Station. You know, I was born later. I had a lot of friends that were listening to Kiss, Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, da, da 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 But, you know, for me, this was, I didn't even know it was a cover tune until I read the liner notes, which is, you know, embarrassingly, you know, something I have to admit at this point, but it worked. It's because, not embarrassing. I well, didn't know it was a cover know. until like 2000. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I think I knew before that, but I mean, uh, it took me a while to learn that it was a cover as well. I remember not being confused by the liner notes when I read the writing credit on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And being like, huh? But no, I didn't. I, I think someone had to tell me. I think they said it on MTV or something at some point where I finally learned it. It's not like I had heard the song ever before. So, well, you would think about this too. I mean, you've got other bands, you know, that were, you know, let's say within a few years, you know, look at Quiet Riot. You know, most of their hits were Slade covers, you know, and they worked and they yeah. were huge videos. So it's no wonder that a song like this was as popular as it was. And this is probably one of the key selling points 
upon initial release for this record. It, it, to me, it works. Um, it's cool. It's, it's well done. Uh, it's probably a stronger track than the Brownsville Station album. I've, I've got both the Motley and the Brownsville versions. And, you know, I appreciate both, but I think this works. You know, it was, it was clever. It's almost like David Lee Roth saying, hey, let's do a cover tune or this is, mm. it, it works for me in a way, you know, and there's lots of great Mick Mars guitar playing in, the, in this song. But the funny thing too, is I remember like, I showed you got the ticket stuff from the, the Pittsburgh show. I remember attending the show and when it came to the harmonica solo, I thought that harmonica does not sound like the recording. <laughs> there's something different about that harmonica playing that I heard in the record that is not quite what's happening here live, but you know, either way, you know, it was a loud show and maybe it was up to the, you know, the PA system to, to make that work or not work. But either way, it, 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 to me, it works. This is probably the closest they've gotten to in terms of an anthem, if you will, on this record, you know, even though it was written by somebody else. Yeah, it's a fun song. I mean, I, I almost think the video itself was more important to the success of the song than the song itself. Because I think the video in terms of the boys stepping into the other world and seeing their perspective in which the educational system is this factory making the students try to conform, you know, which isn't really a part of the song, I think is kind of more no. important to what they were trying to sell than the song itself. I also think the lyric change where they say, my buddy six, Mick and Tom is worth mentioning because this was the image of the band at the time was that they were this gang that hung out all the time and maybe they'd gone to high school together you don't know and they you know they were a gang that just happened to hang out and make music and they were one of the only bands aside from the Beatles and Kiss where you knew every single member of the band and each member of the band had their own fans and you had this notion of them being you know true brothers and that was a big part of what Motley Crue was supposed to be at that point. So I just thought I'd mention that. Louder than hell. Uh, this is, uh, this, I love this song when I was a kid, man. Um, I'm, the more I go through it, the more, um, it's, a, it's a rocking song. I mean, I like it. I mean, the, again, a lot of lyrical stuff that seems a little unfinished, um, you know, some like violence, some like submission. I mean, it doesn't, it's like, what? You know what I mean? They're sort of all over the place um, with what they're saying when they, with the lyrics. But um, I like how it's like, but we like, you know, we like it loud. We like rock and roll. That's our thing. That's our kink. That's our fetish. That's the life that we've chosen. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, Good, you know, great drum thing. Probably a little bit like, um, I love it loud. You know what I mean? A little bit of a borrow from them for that. Um, but I, I remember this is the first song on the album that I really, really liked. Um, yeah, some, some, you know, some blow their head. There's, I mean, again, lyrically, it's interesting, but it seems unfinished. Again, it's like a lot, Nikki's throwing a lot of images at you. Um, but it's not as clear cut as say something from Shout at the Devil. And maybe that's the drugs, or maybe that's just the rushed notion of creating a, um, album under the gun from the studio where they're like, well, this is what I have. It just feels, it feels unfinished now at the age of 50 listening to it. But as a kid, I loved it, man. It rocked, kicked ass. You know what I mean? Had lots of great images in it, lots of great ideas and a killer, you know, that great, you know, great chorus. Dave? Louder Than Hell. Now this one to me, I, I think it gave it started its life as Hotter Than Hell. It was a demo. Um, 
But I think this would have been a better choice as an album opener than City Boy Blues. This would have been my choice for it. Is it the strongest track on the record? Probably not. But I like this song. There was a lot I liked about this song then. I just think it's fun. It's kind of catchy. You know, it's got that rock and roll attitude. I think all the playing is great. I think Tommy's playing is really good. He's really in the pocket on this song. Um, I, I, you know, I think it's a, it's a great cut. And uh, I, again, I thought it would have been better served as the album opener, but I'm not Tom Werman. I'm, I'm not Motley Crue. So again, what do I know? I just know I like the song. Mike? Yeah, I think the, the drum intro reminds me of, uh, especially with like the phase, you know, phaser sound on, on the drums reminds me of uh, like live versions of Moby Dick or, you know, Zeppelin's Levy Breaks in a way. I mean, it's, it's, it's a nod to a previous era. Uh, I think the the main riff in the verse is a classic metal riff, like you know the almost like the Deep Purple kind of you know, root you know in the five kind of riff. It's cool. Um, I like the harmonized guitar parts in the pre-chorus. You know, it shows a little depth and dimension in terms of what they're going to do. Um, again, classic you know Mick you know sort of metal you know style guitar playing with his picking on the fretboard and you know sort of the again if you like it go to like you remember when they, they record like the album uh yeah, hearing aid you know we're stars like there's every every guy was doing that classic ending riff da, 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 da. <laughs> it's the, the classic ending of a solo riff that you know everybody does um but i have a question for david Corelli or anybody that's familiar with the lyrics between the demo which was hotter than hell and you know louder than hell did the verses change between the demo and and this and and how does that you know transcend in terms of like if you have a different chorus if the verses were the same, does that work with an interchangeable chorus? I'd have to go back and reference the demo. I know, I know you, that you're right. It started out as hotter than hell. Yeah, and I think a lot of the lyrics in the verse are the same between both. But yeah. you know, which one really works better for you know in terms of serving the song and the chorus? You know, you know, there's clearly a song before in a band named Kiss. You know, that had you know a song called Hotter Than Hell. But which what is more interesting? Like, is Hotter Than Hell more interesting or Louder Than Hell? I think to me. I think Louder Than Hell works better as, as a chorus for this song. Yeah, I think it's lyrically vague enough that you could get away with either one. I mean, okay. if you had to ask me what this song is about, <laughs> I would have to, I would be hard pressed to know that I was right. I mean, I think he's talking about what motivates people to be in rock and roll bands or what motivates people to, you know, live their lives in general. And you know, the fact that some people in there have no hope or reason in their lives and other people are in it for all the wrong reasons, but they, there's a movie that came out around this time that was kind of like a modern day update of Rebel Without a Cause or something. And I remember in the trailer, you know, they said, what do you, you know, what do you want out of your life? And, and the guy goes, I want more, you know, <laughs> I forget the name of the movie, but it reminds me of this song. Like I, um, there's the lines that are interesting to me are when, when he says, some got to go, go play the role, some scream out in horror just for show. It's almost a callback to, uh, Hey man, are you watching me scream? Are you believing? Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a self-referential callback, but I agree. It should have been the album opener. And I also agree that it doesn't feel fully realized as it is. Um, keep your eye on the money. Uh, that seems to be the comedy del arte song put into a cliched um, 
song about gambling. I mean, there's great lines in the song. You know, I mean, they're talking about gambling, but at the same time, they're talking about being in a rock and roll band, a successful rock and roll band, where they're like, it's tragic, it's comedy and tragedy, entertainment or death. So yeah, they're they're definitely talking about somebody with a gambling addiction and the fact that Motley Crue itself is, in a sense, one huge gamble. Yeah, you're either entertaining or you're. We're either going to be entertaining you or we're done. We're dead. Um, and then, and the and the the line, the crowd screams for um, for more, and um, you know, it's actually kind of clever. And and you can again, this is one of the issues with Motley Crue is that um, they lyrically they always seem to stand out of the crowd because their lyrics are. Um, decent i mean it's almost like self-reflexive you know what i mean and like how many bands really kind of do that kind of stuff but then if you really if you give it a cursory listen you're like oh this is another generic song about gambling keep your eye on your money because people are going to try and take it from you the dealers and the chicks and you know that kind of stuff but then when you really listen to it it's he's really talking about himself you know and how you know their success has been incredibly lucky and then if they don't give out their best you know they're done you know it's entertainment or death we either entertain you or we're you know we're done so um and it's got a killer riff to it and the chorus is clever and catchy um but i just wish it said that's the thing with these songs i just wish somehow the the chorus was a little more clever to clue people in a little bit better but what do i know dave did john crib your notes again Kind of did. The only thing I'd add to that is I, I like this song, the second half of the song in particular. I like the I like the way they bring this chorus into that second half of the song and they bring it out. Um, I don't have too much more to add to that other than I, you know it is it's a it's a cool song for me. I, and I think part of you know um, in one way reflecting on this record, and I don't mean to knock on him, and please don't take this as a knock, but my least favorite member of this band is Vince Neil as far as a, a musician is concerned. Um, and it's not that Vince is a bad vocalist. I just think that Tommy Lee is a phenomenal drummer. Mick Mars is a grossly underrated guitar player in a lot of ways. Um, and certainly Nikki Six is one hell of a songwriter, you know? So yeah, that's, that's, that's big company. So, but I, I think sometimes it's, it's Vince's phrasing that makes it difficult to follow and track every, you know, the subject matter of the song. You got to go back and listen to it a couple of times to really get what's coming at you. Cause sometimes it comes at you pretty fast, the way he phrases, you know, and puts together um, his, his, his vocalizing is the best way I can put it. And again, that's not a slam, but on, on, on this, it's one of those songs that at the end, the second half of the song, it's so clear. The, the chorus is so clear. Um, everything kind of comes together, gels for me, the second half of the song. So um, that's all. Mike? Yeah, and I will totally absolutely buy into David's point about, you know, the, the delivery vocally, because that's something we discussed on you know, Shout the Devils. Like, thank goodness right. for lyric sheets. Because if you had to, you know, just listen to the record and understand what, what is being said or, you know, read to you or, you know, sung to you, you know, good luck. Good luck, you know, and thank goodness for lyric sheets. Um, you know, but at the same time, too, much like Louder Than Hell, it's it's a, a sort of a deep purple nod. It's got the sort of, you know, smoke in the water kind of riff, a little heavier. Uh, but when it kicks in, you know, the bass line kicks in in the second half of the verse, it's heavy. It's classic crew. 
Uh, the Calba before the course is classic crew. You know, they're, they're, you know, they're not doing anything new here. They're just, you know, kind of doing what they do. Um, but I always wondered who the high vocal in the chorus was. And I read something online that was apparently, there, apparently this guy named Max Carl, who did uh, background vocals on this record. Max was later in, I believe, if I'm wrong in this, correct me, he was also in 38 Special and uh, sang on the song, um, uh, Heart Needs a Second Chance, I believe, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah, and then he was also, or he is, you know, currently in Grand Funk Railroad as, as uh, you know, the lead singer, you know, or one of the lead singers in, in that band. So uh, if you're wondering who those other background vocals might have been, it could have been him. Uh, but it, to me, that stood out, you know, as a kid and also now. Now I think I finally figured who that was. Um, but, you know, lyrically, uh, you know, again, I mentioned like in City Boy Blues, it, it's kind of, you know, a personal story. You know, where you mentioned things like, you know, electric shock will bring you back, you know, and like to the morphine, you know, and, you know, the crowd looks on in horror, like in a way they're kind of telling stories of what there would be, what would it be like to see this band on stage live? Because I remember seeing these guys in 85 and 87 and you literally thought, are they going to make it through the show? It was dangerous. It was scary, you know, and to, to, you know, to preface that with a lyric like that, you know, if you read into the lyrics and you read that, you think, oh my God, what are these guys going through? You know, it's, it's kind of scary, you know? I, you know, I couldn't write a song like that because my lifestyle is not that way. However, these guys, live that life and they write songs about it and that's why they're as successful as they are because somehow they persevere and they survive and they do it and and, and good good on you for doing that you know yeah um this is the one song on the album that i i think they could have ended a bit quicker like the the repeat of yeah. the chorus with the minor variations at the end it gets a bit much it goes on a little long you know after I'm ready for the song to be over, it's still going. And I, um, my other big memory of the song when we heard it is that, John, you know, we used to have these headbanging contests where we would pick songs to see who could bang your head to the song all the way through the song. And so the thing you, the classic thing you would do is you'd pick like Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner or some song that just goes on for like, you know, eight yeah, minutes. Nine minutes, yeah. Yeah, and then at the end of it, you know, you'd be like lying on the floor with your like neck feeling like it was broken. Yeah, I'm surprised we're not dead. <laughs> yeah, but. We're stronger because of it. I remember we did it to this song because this song just feels like it goes on forever. Well, it's funny because it's only um, four minutes, 40 seconds. But but it seems longer than it is. Yeah. But can I can I point something out lyrically that I read about uh, recently that I wasn't aware of? Uh, there was a thing, I think a quote in the, the five, you know, first five years book where the perspective was, you know, much like, you know, Paul Stanley has said about you know, between like when Kiss had to like, where they're working on Dress to Kill and then they release Kiss Alive, like the roller coaster is about to begin. Okay, now, you know, keep your eye on the money because it's a whole different ballgame now. We're successful and things are just going to go mm-hmm. wall crazy with the money. So, you know, it is a gambling thing, maybe, but it's also sort of a you know, note to self like, hey, you know, keep your eye on the money because who knows you know, where things are going to go from this point on. Well, Nikki Six has said that the best advice he ever got was that no matter how much money you're making, you should always reserve 10%, right? So that's, I mean, the idea that he keeps his eye on his money is is quite true. Yeah. yeah. I got to borrow that book from you. It, it's a great, I, it's it's killer. I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, we're close by. I'll, I'll, I'll drop it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we went all went to the same high school. We did. Well, you know. 
yeah. rock and roll high school, right? <laughs> okay, okay yeah. can I also point something out too? And I'm noticing this too from the record. Um, if you look at the CD, the, the, the songs are in a certain order when it comes to lyrics. We mentioned lyric sheets, right? Yeah. But on the LP, here, here's the running order of the record. If you look at the okay. songwriting, it's City Boy Blues, Fight for Your Rights, Home Sweet Home, Keep Your Eye on the Money, Louder Than Hell, Raise Your Hands to Rock, Save Our Souls, Smoke in the Boys Room, Tonight We Need a Lover, and Use It or Lose It at the end. That's the order of the lyrics. Was that you know, uh, a sequence that was considered? You wonder. That's in interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like to know. Uh, I, I, miss, huh. I miss that, but is that an alphabetical order? Like maybe like Kiss Dynasty? Oh. You know what, Dave? You were you were absolutely right. It's al alphabetical order for sure. Wow. Which is the kind of thing they might do if they were struggling to come up with a track <laughs> yeah, exactly. as they might have been with this album. Yeah, yeah right? Do the um, easy thing, alphabetical that's order. That's what wow, the, the band The Pixies yeah. does when they tour, they play their set list in alphabetical order. Because <laughs> so they literally just pick the songs they're going to do and they put them in alphabetical order because they can never figure out how to do it. Really? It's, it's funny because you have Kim Deal saying things like going from the V's into the H's. That's their like stage banter between songs because they. Oh, and Mike, Mike is pointing out that the album cuts are on alphabetical order on the back of the I'm album kidding. as well. Okay. That's interesting. crazy. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Dynasty is like that. Unmasked is like that. That's yes. The only reason yeah. I thought maybe that was the case. Yeah. That's why we discuss these things. You know, we, we need to right. get to the bottom of it. So one is crazy. Right. Huh. Home sweet home. I cannot actually respond to this song in any way, shape, or form due to the fact yeah. that I've heard this song so many times that I hate it. Even though, so upon re-listen to it, it's actually not that bad, but I mean, the guitar solo is huge. And the, um, you know what I mean? You finally hear some sort of neat bass playing by uh, Nikki Six in there, uh, you know, during the guitar solo and stuff like that. So musically, it's pretty interesting. The, the piano uh, part is, you know, it's downright like, terrible i mean it's, it's somebody i read some joke that it was like if you were at a frat party and there's a piano in the frat in the in the frat house some drunk d-bag will pick go over the piano and either play a chopsticks or b home sweet home and it's on the <laughs> piano which i swear is like i i don't know if i can like actually give a, a fair review of this because i've just heard it so much um, that I, I can't, you know what I mean? Like, I, I can't say anything nice about it because it, it's just back, it's background noise at this point. But again, uh, the guitar solo that uh, Mick Mars, where it's, you know, sort of soars into that guitar part is fantastic. The, um, the little bit of bass playing down at the, in the back end where, you know, uh, Nikki is playing behind the solo is pretty neat. Um, but um other than that, man, I, I, I can't, I don't like, I mean, I like the song and I don't like the song. Like, I just can't, I've just heard it played so much. And I know that it's, it's irrepresentative of the band. You know what I mean? It's not heavy enough to, for my taste. It's, you know, uh, it spawned a million terrible power ballads, you know, that kind of stuff. So 
I I'm gonna give a reserved reserved. I like it because on re-listen, it is actually not a bad song, but it's just it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So I can't really give it a you know a fair review. I hear you. Dave? Well, you know, I, I again I, I agree with John. And um, you know, I heard it a, a million times and the, the sound of the piano uh, for a while there kind of drove me nuts, kind of had that toy piano sound in my head for a minute. But you know, I, I went back a, a number of years ago and revisited the song because I was in a band here in, in, in Las Vegas called Brutal Planet. And we were doing a show at one of the rooms at the Orleans, at their main showroom. And what I had done is I'd put together this whole Halloween-themed show. All the material was going to be Halloween-themed material. So, of course, when are you doing that? You've got Iron Maiden, you've got Kiss, Alice Cooper, you know, all of that, right, Ozzy. But I went, obviously, deep to the, the Motley Crue catalog and, Save Our Souls, coincidentally, was a song that we had rehearsed. And at the very last minute, um, with some band discussion, it was like, listen, we, you know, let's, let's, you know, there was some prodding on me. Let's add Home Sweet Home. And we did. I could tell you that entire show, we did all these hits that you guys would obviously know. When we came to that song, I, the plays went absolutely nuts. You know, it's fun to play as a guitar player because, you know, it is a cool solo, yeah. right? Um, as a piano player, me, it's, it's, it wasn't a huge challenge to play that. Um, but I can tell you the reaction says a lot. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, like the song, don't like the song, we're burnt out of the song. But I go, I, I, it, it's that reset button yeah. for me is, you know, go back and reappreciate and, and learn something from a band like that that writes a song that maybe it's, it comes across as too obvious, too simple, gave birth to a lot of other songs. Absolutely. Well, there's a reason it did. Because they, you know, they 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 wrote a, a fantastic song, and uh, I have a different appreciation for ha having to have played it at least once live and and seeing the reaction to it. It gave me a different appreciation from a different angle. And uh, hey, what performer amongst us doesn't like to get a great you know a great response? Yeah, from, yeah, from true. People love that song. I mean, there's no you know, yeah. you can't deny that it's a great freaking song. But but it is. It is. It's one of those songs you've heard it so yeah, many times. Exactly. Like, the they made a rule at MTV about it. Like, you can't play a song like you played Home Sweet Home. Well, okay, because it, it, it kept winning the, the call-in video votes, right? It was like, it never left. And it was there for so long that it was always number one that they actually had to make a rule to rotate it out or else it just would have kept winning the number one call-in video choice on MTV, which is what makes it so funny that, Motley Crue actually went and did a, a, a second video for it when they did uh, the Best Of album. And I think Nicky re-recorded some of his bass or, or whatever because they said that they thought the song never got its fair due. Ah. Never got its fair due? What are you talking <laughs> about? It was played constantly on MTV. Well, that song was played all the time. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, think of it what you will from you know today's perspective. But at the time, you know, yeah, it, it's it has become a standard for you know bands to you know, to replicate later. But it's also you know that verse is really just you know don't let the sun go down on me from Elton John, right? It, it's it's something we've heard before. You know, it's a cool chord structure. It works, but it's not anything unlike what they've done on like um, uh, Danger, 
you know, from Shout the Devil. Maybe it's that same kind of, you know, haunting, descending or ascending, you know, riff that, that works. You know, it's like a pedal tone kind of thing. I mean, you know, it's no wonder they said, listen, we got to start writing songs like with that chord structure on guitar. What are we going to do? Well, who plays piano? Okay, we play that. You know, I don't know how that worked out, but you can't do the same thing all the time. You got to change it and make it seem like you're doing something different. No wonder it worked. Um, as a kid, I remember this being a huge video. You know, it's no wonder this, you know, catapulted those guys into, you know, megastardom in a way. Uh, it's a well-written song. Again, for all the reasons that, you know, David Leary mentioned, the solo is badass. It's great. It's got, it's just a ton of great Right, that's the best part of it. Um, yeah, and that, that breakdown, you know, when they go into the, the second half of the solo with, you know, the bass line changing, it, it's heavy. It's classic crew. There's, you know, there's nothing to, you know, say, you know, there's nothing to not like about the song in that regard. But the thing that I found cool later on was I remember watching um, uh, an interview. It was like something like, you know, in the making of November Rain, Guns N' Roses. And I think Axl Rose had mentioned one of the things that influenced him to write a song like November Rain was seeing the Motley Crue Home Sweet Home video, mm. you know, and, and saying, OK, I, I should write a song like that, which, you know, I don't which I, which I found really revealing in a way that, you know, would, that, you know, that he would say that, but uh, I, I, I could see the, you know, the, the correlation in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah again, it, it's a huge song and it works. It, it really like, if you're going to have an album, you want to have at least two strong songs, which one, the first one was, was a cover song, Smoking in the Boys Room, and the second one was this ballad and it, it works, you know? And if you have an album that has two strong songs on the record, you're doing a lot better than a lot of bands, you know, from that era, in my opinion. So there's nothing to, you know, to say, you know, <laughs> I don't, you know, I'd be proud to write a song like this, and, and thank goodness that they did. And I think they they wear it in their sleeve, and, and they should. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it is one of the all time classic power ballads, and I get that it's it's hard to talk about it objectively because, like ACDC's "You Shook Me All Night Long," you know, it, you walk yeah. into any rock bar in America and you're there for an hour, you'll probably hear this song, right? And and so. Um, but unlike so many of the rock ballads that it spawned, even though it's kind of a simple song, it's not a generic song, you know? I mean, the whole concept of home itself is so primal that I think the song speaks to you on a very primal level, but then it also gets into some really interesting things. I mean, obviously they kind of stole, they didn't invent the phrase home sweet home, but from Aerosmith, uh, Home Sweet Home. What's that song that they reference that in? Um, home Sweet. Oh, oh, oh uh, Last Child. Last Child, right. right. Yeah. yeah. So Nikki takes yeah. a lot from that that song. Um, you know, again, lyrically, I wonder why when they say just when things went right doesn't mean they were always wrong. Uh, that line has always stuck with me because really what I think he's saying is just because things went right doesn't mean they were always wrong. And that's almost the right word to mean what you're trying to say, but not quite. Um, I think it's interesting that they they break the fourth wall with this song when they talk about it as a song and say, just take this song and you'll never feel left all alone. You know, um, feel me in your heart, feel me in your bones. I, I think that that this is one of those bands that has always had that kind of intimate connection with their fans. And that the fact that they talk about it in this song, that like, you know, them kind of saying, we're here for you, use our music to help you. Again, self-reflexive in a way that most bands never 
try to be. Um, I, you know, I was looking at the, the history of the phrase long and winding road that was originated with the Beatles song. I was thinking it came from something else, like it was a, from a poem or something, but no, that was no. the Beatles song. Um, okay. Interesting lyric discrepancy between what they printed and what Vince sings when he says, uh, <laughs> you know that I, the lyrics as they print them are, you know that I seem to make romantic dreams up in lights falling off the silver screen. But what he sings is, you know that I've seen too many romantic dreams oh up in lights falling off the silver screen, which is a completely different meaning, but, you know, in a sense gets across the same feeling and is, is a great, a great line. The, the idea that these, these romantic dreams are illusions and they're not holding up and they're, and they're, and they're falling away. I mean, that's some brilliant Nikki Six songwriting, even if either version Vince chooses to sing. So, um, yeah, you know, the other thing is I just heard a cover of this song that was for the Netflix horror haunted house TV show. Dave, you know what that's called? I forget. You were telling uh, me to watch haunting it. a blind manor or hill house. Yeah, there, there you go. Okay. And and man, that cover sounded fresh as hell. And just my ears perked up and I was like, where do I know that melody from? And I, I go, oh my God, that's Home Sweet Home, which is the test of any great song that you can cover it in a way like that. So it's completely different than the original and still make a great song out of it. So mm -hmm. John, David Lucrelli and John Carson, you might've seen the show, what was it, August 7th, 85 in, in Pittsburgh, right? We'll get into all that, yeah. <laughs> okay, but, but I have a question about this song. One of the things I remember, and. I don't think I imagined it because I was absolutely straight headed watching the show. After the guitar solo, when there's the breakdown and, they, and Tommy goes and plays the piano again, I swear to God, I saw Tommy Lee go walk over the piano and throw his drumsticks at the hi-hat and hit the hi-hat with the drumsticks, psh, boom, and go to the piano thing. I, that's a clear visual that I have in my head. Does anybody else remember seeing that during the show? No, but it's funny that you say that because I have a memory from that show that I'm not sure to what extent it actually happened and what extent it's just in my, my mind that I have to ask you guys about too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll get to it. Yeah. John, do you remember him throwing and hitting the no, hat? That I do not remember at all. Okay. 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 Yeah, I was 15th row. Uh, okay. So we I, were in the know. nosebleeds, I think, weren't we? Or we Whatever row in is, you know. I, I don't remember where I was for that. Remember, one. It's funny. I don't think it. I don't, we didn't have terrible seats, but they yeah. weren't great. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. Tonight we need a lover. Uh, I'm so glad that they hired the Bangles to come in and sing the bridge part. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's whatever. It's it's a good song. I mean, interesting, weird thing that happened. If you listen to it on iTunes, for some reason, the iTunes feed breaks there and it stops on that song. It won't play the song. You have to like skip it, listen to the next song and then jump back to here tonight. We need a lover, which I don't know if that's just my iPhone or whatever. But um, hmm. so I kept hearing it actually last instead of where it falls in the album. Um it's not, it's not the great, it's whatever. It's kind of cliche. It's almost borderline uh, filler, but, but there's like, there's energy to it. It rocks. I mean, I like the, you know what I mean? It's like, it's good. I like the, there's like a little bit of a keyboard in there too, I think. There is. Yeah. Um, 
which mm-hmm. I thought was interesting. Organ, the, yeah. the chorus, it always, there's always something about these metal bands that when they do the super four part harmony over a song about group you know, sex, group, group you know sex. what I mean? They just, yeah. they turn it into like, you know, they use these almost religious type choral arrangements in a song about having sex. And, and then what's interesting about that choral arrangement in the bridge, which I found is the most interesting part of the song, um, is that it sounds exactly like the freaking bangles. I mean, it, like to, to me, it sounded like they brought in the bangles to sing that part. Well, um, they're singing a, like a sus chord or something that then yeah. resolves itself, which is really kind of cool uh-huh. in terms okay, of harmony. Yeah. It's, it's definitely the most interesting part. And again, it's almost like, why is it there? But then it held my interest. I mean, it kept the song going and kept it, you know, rocking. I mean, it was a fine, it's a good rock, you know, good solid rock song. I wouldn't ever play it again unless I was listening to the full album, but it held my interest. It was all right. Dave? Well, you know, again, John steals my my notes. Um, I do like that little (laughs) section there, the Bengals sing. But I think what they're trying to say is, hey, young lady, I'm young, I'm dangerous but I'm still sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. That's <laughs> so don't be afraid, right? Yeah, don't be afraid. Come on in. Sing harmony with other dudes. It's, yeah. <laughs> that sums it up for me. I, <laughs> I might like group sex, but I can sing like a barbershop quartet. <laughs> Mike? Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, all the other, you know, subjects, you know, are discussed in terms of, you know, lyric content, you know, aside. I think the things that, that I learned from this record, from this song early on, were the fact that, you know, that main riff with it, you, it's, you got that same kind of thing like Ace Frehley's doing in Rocket Ride, where you got the, the string hitting, the, you know, the pickup. Like there's that percussive sound that, that works. And, you know, I've tried to use it on some things I've recorded. And also, too, um, Dave, you and I and Dave Fortune have always kind of, reference like how do you transition between certain parts you go from like that which is like a gd you know chord progression that works you know it's there's a lot to take from from this record in terms of learning how to write a song not that you need to steal things in order to write a song but if you need a reference and you need to transition they're out there and these guys have done it you know they're, they're experts at it and you know is it the strongest song that they've ever written no it's a good opening for you know side two but is it the best song they've ever written no but you know then again, too, it's also the precursor for a lot of the whammy bar stuff that you know Mick is doing in the verse. They later did in uh, the wrist to uh, Girls, Girls, Girls on uh, you know, the album that came after this. So yeah, you know. and I, I feel like that's true about more than one song in this album. That it, it's yeah. kind of the embryonic form of things that they would get to in a, a more fully realized way later. Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting fact. So the original line lyric to this song, 90,000 screaming watts, blood dripping from her crotch. And I, I guess the record company said, no, 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 no. We're not going there. You know, so they, they cleaned yeah. that up to honey dripping from her pot. Um, interesting that they speed up at the end. That's, you know, I don't know how effective that is, but it's something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I have too much more to say about this. It's, it's it, you know, from a, a subject matter point of view, it's the sort of thing that sounds cool when you're 14 years old and then you get a little older and have a little bit more experience touching on 
some of these things in real life and you realize that they sound a lot better in theory than they are in practice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well put. Yes. Yeah. Well put. Uh, use it or lose it. I love that riff. That's a great riff that he, uh, that Mick does. Um, super fast. Um, I like all the, um, the things or the, I mean, I remember this is the first song I seem to remember that really like named checked famous people. I mean, it didn't go into, I mean, the, um, the end of the world as we know it came out of another year later. And then that's Billy Joel's song that name checked everybody came out after that. Oh. And um, we didn't start the fire. You know. Yeah. Although the, uh, you know, the end of the world as we know it is, is the superior name checking song, I guess. But if you had to list name checking songs in a chart somewhere, which someday maybe I will, but um, <laughs> I remember like being like just the concept of, um, you know, James Dean didn't play the role you know, he was really living it like we're really living it, you know, and you've got to use the talent that you have or you're going to lose it. Um, and this I, I want to ask you guys this upon your second or whatever listening that you've done here. I remember as a child, they name check Margaret Trudeau, who was the yes. prime minister of Canada mm -hmm. at the time, who was a she was the wife of the prime minister That's of it. Canada. She had just recently gotten divorced. I had to look her up for this podcast and do research because she has to be the most obscure specific reference Nikki Six has ever made. Yeah. I mean, to this day, people do not talk that much about Margaret Trudeau, but she was uh, kind of this hippie flower child, wild child. Uh, she got busted for smuggling drugs in her mm -hmm. suitcases into the Canadian prime minister's mansion. She was known for dancing, particularly scantily clad at Studio 54, you know, and, and now she's actually an advocate uh, for bipolar people. So apparently she was bipolar and- Yeah, well, it's definitely, I remember like learning something about Canadian politics at 15, you know, or 14, I guess, um, you know, that I wouldn't have known. So I always kind of like the, the song for that. Um, but I swear it now that I listen to it, I swear to God, he's saying Michael Trudeau. I, I'm sure they didn't re-record it because Michael Trudeau is now the guy in charge. Um, no. Yeah. In the lyrics, it's Mark. Yeah, it is. Okay. It. All right. Yeah. They didn't re-record it and change it. Um, but I, I actually like this. It's one, it's one of my favorite songs on the album between the name checks um and the um that killer riff and um the catchy chorus you know that kind of stuff I, I really like it it's one of my favorite songs of the album i would almost say it'd be a good opener to the album or at least a good opener to side two you know or something like that mm -hmm. agreed dave yeah this is where i now know that john and i are not cheating because i'm on the <laughs> other side of this and it's a song that, that use it or lose it they should have lost it it just I, hmm. I can never, ever, and, and I've tried, really ever get through the entire song. I probably get 10 seconds before the song's over and I'm finding myself reaching over for the next. Um, it just doesn't talk to me. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure it's cool for all those reasons and you guys gave me reasons to go back and listen to it again and see if uh, I can change my opinion of the song. But from, you know, just listening through over the years, it's just not a song that really uh, connected with me. Mike? 
I have a personal love for this song because I believe it was the B-side for the Home Sweet Home 45 single. Okay. And the reason I know it is because there was a uh, jukebox in a pizza shop in Regent Square, Pennsylvania, which was in between where Dave Lucrell lived and where I lived in Swissville. Dave lived in Squirrel Hill. Uh, but if you wanted to clear the pizza place <laughs> and piss off the people behind the counter, you would put your quarter in, you play Use It or Lose It. And they would be like, oh, my God, why are you guys playing? We just played it over and over again. They hated it, you know. But it's it's a badass riff and now as much as i liked it then i didn't understand why but now i understand why because i became a fan of bands like cactus and van halen and it's got that crazy transition between the verse and the chorus like where the guitar starts to riff but then the drums kind of follow suit it, it's it, there's an art to playing those kind of songs and these guys somehow had it you know and they were contemporaries with you know van halen and they had probably seen bands like cactus and they knew how to do that is it a great song no um, but it's also, you know, sort of a note to self, like, you know, use it or lose it, you know, or otherwise it's going to go away. But I, I found an interesting thing about the lyric sheet, too, is, um, you know, in the lyrics, when you look at it, it reads, use it or lose it, sweet time is on my side, question mark. Sort of asking the question, you know. Right. And I think Vince actually side. sings, sweet time, is it on my side? Okay. Yeah. Again, things that are lost in translation, you know, when it comes to, you know, the songwriter and, you know, the, the lyric, you know, the person that's you know, doing the singing. But either way, I mean, yeah, I liked it as a kid and I, I, I like it now. And it's it's not the easiest song to play. If you had to put a band together and say, let's play this song now, could you do it? You know, good luck. <laughs> it's a barn burner, you know. But at the same time, it's really not that great of a song, but it's it's powerful and it's tuneful and it's it's heavy and it does what it does. You know, it's kind of like they're hot for teacher in a way, you know? Mm -hmm. You're making me go back and listen to it all over again. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> With a fresh attitude, a fresh perspective, I'll put all okay. my biases aside and I promise you I'll give it a fresh listen. So I like the song. I like the <laughs> lyric sentiment of it. Um, I, I think that in some ways the arrangement of the song doesn't quite work. It's almost, it's like things are happening so fast in the song that they kind of fly right over your head. And then mm -hmm. the, it feels like the bottom of the song drops out at a certain point and it doesn't really, here's the thing. This riff is almost identical to wild side. And it's like they, yeah. they took wild side and they, they rearranged it. So this riff, so that it works better than it does here. Mm. So that the bass okay. and the guitar are, are really reinforcing each other versus the way it is here. It's almost like the, the guitar's way up here, like flying above the bass. And it doesn't, it doesn't sound like a full band playing necessarily versus Wild Side, obviously it works a lot better. Can I bring a point too? And we haven't discussed this yet. Um, Cause I, I, I was curious because, you know, the 85 show, you know, was, was a, a freaking blur except for the you know, fact I still say Tommy Lee threw the drumsticks at you know the hi-hat in Home Sweet Home and it worked um, but I was pleasantly surprised in a way how many songs they played from this record live on this tour there were a ton I think this was one of them it was they played, they a, played a lot of songs. City Boy Blues yeah. Keep Your Eye on the Money um, lots yeah yeah which is I mean, it's not surprising because we talked about Kiss, like they opened, you know, the, the, the Destroyer tour with, you know, Detroit Rock City and King of the Nighttime World. And it's ballsy to like you know, play, you know, open, you know, songs that were on the new record for an audience that was old in a way, you know? Yeah. But they, obviously they embraced the record enough where they could pull together and play it live. And I don't think they really sold the, the audience short in terms of their presentation of the songs, whether the songs are great or not. It's an interesting point because, you know, 
say we real about these songs, they felt strong enough to play those songs live, and you know, and it works. It still sounds like Motley Crue, either way. For sure. Okay, save our souls. Yeah. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> that was John. Man, yeah. I like. I mean, man, like it's it's them talking about their debaucherous lifestyle and how they really want their state their souls saved, but I don't buy it. It seems like it's kind of, um, you know what I mean. I don't I don't like the um, I don't like the song, but I feel like I should. I just wish there was more to it. I mean, I get what they're going for. You know what I mean? Save our souls. We've lived this horrible life and we need to um, be brought back from the brink of death. And, you know, there's even some line about edge of an overdose. I guess they were like, you know, they knew they were sort of a little more personal about it than they should have been. But I just, I don't know, man, it just could have been such a better song, especially with what the lives they were leading. You know what I mean? Like instead it sort of comes off as almost a generic we're so bad, you know, save us, you know, kind of thing. So I don't know. I just want more from it. Dave? I like where they're going. I don't know that they fully realize this song, but there's something about this song. And I, I can't quite put my finger on it and, and quantify it in any meaningful way, but it, it sounds like something that could have been with more work off a shot of the devil. Mm -hmm. um, there's just, just just some elements of it that um, a darkness maybe to it, something. I don't know if lyrically it got where they wanted to go, or musically they got where they wanted it necessarily to go, but I overall, I do, I, I like this song um, for that very reason, because I, I love the album, its predecessor so much. This song kind of reminds me of, of, of a relative of it in some way. Again, it could have been a demo at that time. Um, but uh, for, for, that, for those reasons, I, I don't skip this song. Mike? Yeah. Um, as a kid, I, I liked it when the record came out. I, I wouldn't really say it's the strongest song on the record, um, but I, I think there's something to the lyrics um, that are, you know, can be appreciated for sure. If you know, I, I don't think it, it, that's necessarily sold in the song in, in the delivery of the vocal. Um, you know, if you, if you read the lyrics, you know, you, I think you get more a sense of the picture of what's going on rather than listen to the vocal delivery. Mm. Um, for me personally, now as a guitar player, um, is the fact that Mick Mars is a great slide guitar player. You know, it, it's very Joe Walsh in a way, and, and there's a lot of these licks that I didn't realize that I had heard as a kid. Like when I, when I was a kid, I, I tried to play slide guitar and I couldn't do it. I was terrible. Like now, like the only sessions I get called in for, like, hey, you can play slide guitar, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I can play slide guitar. Okay, I'm, I'm going to get the gig. I'll, I'll be in the band. All right. Okay, and play no some problem. acoustic, too. I know you love to play acoustic. Yeah, and I love acoustic guitar. So, you know, but you know, but at the same time, too, there's so many of these licks that I heard as a kid that I that I now use. I didn't realize that. And listening to this record again, I was reminded of the fact that how influential this band is. You know, you might not be aware of it, but if you listen to this stuff, it's, it's going to sink in. You're going to use it later. And again, there's always something to draw out of you know, the music and, and the record and the album and the songs. And, you know, that's the beauty of music, you know. And for me personally, I, I, my takeaway is slide guitar. OK, yes, I love Joe Walsh, but I'm probably channeling Mick Mars in a way. And I didn't realize it until this day. Dave, do you got to go? I do. My wife's okay. my sister's on the phone, so she needs to talk to me badly. No worries, man. I'll give you a text. Take care, What's Dave. Up? Thank you, guys.
Okay. Thank you. All of you. Okay. You too, sir. Till the next time. So yeah, Dave had to go take care of some stuff. Um, yeah. So I have mixed feelings about this song because uh, Nikki recycles some lyrics from yeah. a different song uh, that they did back in the club days, I guess. And they, they, there's a demo of it floating around called Always Running Wild in the Night. And it's weird the way that he recycles the lyrics because he actually cuts out some of the, the lines in each lyrical phrase. Um, so for instance, in Always Running Wild, in, the, in Save Our Souls, uh, he says, black angels laughing in the city streets Street toys, street toys scream in pain and clench their teeth. But in Always Running Wild in the Night, the line is, black angels laugh in the city streets, their jokes gone too far. Street toys scream in pain and clench their teeth. They hide in the dark. Um, and, and it's actually a really interesting song because it, it name checks and references Home Sweet Home, um, where they where they say, uh, you know, but the city won't let us go home, home sweet home, because we're always running wild in the night, which in some ways is a cliche, but in other ways is maybe more interesting and maybe a better song than Save Our Souls is. And, mm -hmm. you know, but again, Save Our Souls is kind of interesting because it's it's kind of a little bit of clever wordplay that just occurred to me today. You know, when somebody says save your soul, they're usually talking about redeeming your soul, right? And that's not what Nikki Six is talking about. He's talking about reserving our souls. You know, like yeah. we're not I mean, using yeah. our souls at all the way we're living right now. So just put them on a shelf somewhere. And, you know, then when we die, please take them to heaven. Um, yeah, when I need that lifeline, it's there. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, so, I agree totally. Yeah. So, you know, I like the song. I like a lot of the lyric imagery, the midnight showstoppers. It's a funny money game. I mean, Nikki talks a lot about how when they were headlining the, the whiskey several nights in a row, they somehow never saw a dime uh, of profit from doing that. Um, I think it's interesting the line a hundred thousand bleeding hearts put us in our grave uh, that is actually an interesting line i'm sorry i i just yeah i take that as a, almost to a phrase to almost to the pmrc or to the way that his fans make him you know work hard you know what i mean the fans sort of put the pressure on them you know what i mean to always be on you know Doing their best. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that is no. That's okay. I mean, when I hear bleeding hearts, I think bleeding heart liberals, right? That's kind of the the standard term. bleeding yeah. heart. So, but yeah. um, I mean, it's it. The lyrics. I mean, it's it's funny the way that the song ends when he when he says it's been the hard road edge of an overdose. No matter how high, you're still too low. I've been the dancer, the wicked romancer. An, it's a never-ending nightmare, edge of disaster. Because, I mean, it's almost like he's he's stopped writing the song. These are just like phrases that he's throwing out there on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And yet those lyrics come back to me and haunt me more than just about any other Motley Crue song. You know, like I've been the dancer, the wicked romance, you know, never ending nightmare, edge of disaster. There's something about this song that is haunting. 
Can I give you credit, Dave? I think this, I, you might have sort of rewritten the song with uh, the Dame Fortune song, Lush. You know, the, mm. the phrasing is kind of the same, you know, and in the pre-chorus, it, it's classic Motley Crue, but like, you know, in, in, you know, years later, again, we all are influenced by this stuff. I think you clearly define sometimes, you know, what your influences are, and you, and you have no problem putting that into a new song. You can you give me credit for stealing the song idea, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to be nice about it. But you did a great, you know, if you're going to steal, like if we said before, if you're going to steal, steal from the best, but I don't, I maybe you weren't aware of it, you know, Yeah. at the time, you know, and it, again, Lush is a great song. It's, you know, Save Our Souls is a great song, you know, debatable, you know, <laughs> it's, it's up to the listener, you know. Raise your hands to rock. Uh, this is such, this is such filler. It's not even worth really talking about. I mean, this is, it sounds like the Twisted Sisters song married with like, I don't know, some, you know, that sort of acoustic, you know, with the acoustic beginning, it's just such a, it's a paint by numbers song. There's really nothing interesting about it. And, and then when I realized that it sounds exactly like the Twisted Sisters song, um, which I think also was produced by Tom Worman as well. And again, going by Tom Worman's, you know, you put your weakest song right before the last song on the album, I'd say this is the weakest song on the album. Mike? Yeah, as a kid, you know, there were you know, two things you do not want to hear in, in your favorite, you know, rock band or metal band uh, recordings, which was one, keyboards. Oh, they're, they're using keyboards. That's like so new wave. What's going on there? Uh, and the last thing you want to hear was a bunch of acoustic guitar, in my opinion. And... You know, uh, we always say, oh, my God, what's with the acoustic guitar? It was so like, you know, kumbaya, campfire, you know, we're going to do the thing. But at the same time, too, uh, I read later on that the uh, sometime might have been influenced by uh, a suggestion from Carmine Peace, right? Mm. You know, which you know, may or may not be true. Uh, and for sure, it's, you know, harkens, you know, back to, you know, the twist thing I want to rock, you know, it's it. But, you know, if you get into the like, it's. It's still storytelling. If you get in the verses, it tells a story. And, you know, as a kid, you know, I could relate. Like, you know, I, I thought, you know, what am I going to do to get off of Monongahela Avenue in Swissvale and get to you know, the Sunset Strip? You know, I'm going to get there someday, you know. And damn it, if this, this song probably didn't help me get there in a way, you know. I'm not going to say I'm as successful as anybody else in the music business, but, you know, at least I got that far. And it might have been because of this song. Well, in you're way, in demand you know? from a million bands, brother. So, you know, you do, you well, claim you know, some success. <laughs> but you know, what I'm trying to say is, you know, it can't a bad song be an influence in a way. And can it be something that inspires you? And, and thank goodness for this song. And Dave, you and I have talked about this. Like, this song spoke to me as a kid, you know, even though it was so like anti Motley Crue, it was like around the campfire, acoustic guitar. What's going on here? This is not the Motley Crue that I, that I expected to hear. But if you listen to it and you give it, give the song it's due and you listen to it, you, you'll learn something from it. There's always something to learn from the song and it can be inspiring at the same time. Yeah, there's no doubt that it steals the main hook of I Wanna Rock, Hook, Line, and Sinker. But Clearly, uh, yeah. Nikki's never been too proud to steal a great hook. I mean, we'll get into this <laughs> later, but Saints of Los Angeles totally steals the hook of uh youth of the nation right i mean we are yeah. we are yeah yeah okay yeah um yeah. but i do think the verses are poignant i mean it's you know i mean it's john cougar Mellencamp, and yeah that's play, it. that's play guitar and yeah all that kind point. of thing but but you know again as a kid wanting to 
figure out how to make that transition from being a kid to being a rock star, the fact that somebody that did it was saying that, hey, man, you know, if you got to have heart and believe in it and before you know it, it might happen for you. That that's a powerful message. You know, might it happen. Is. Being a rock star is not a meritocracy. <laughs> how hard you work at it, it still might not pay off. Fight for your rights. Um, I really like this as a kid because, you know, I was Mr. Socially Aware, you know, that kind of stuff. Now looking back at it, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, you can't, you know, it's so trying to be politically correct, but not politically correct at all. Um, but, you know, I, 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 you know, in listening to it now, I'm sort of like, can you imagine a world where everybody's a Motley Crue fan? We're all in this great utopia where we're all, you know what I mean? Sort of like, I don't know. It, um, it's a bit ridiculous. The, the song, we've been arguing about this lyric since uh, we were 14, which is, uh, what can you tell about a man from the color of his keys which I swear to God, I've, no one has ever figured that out. Nobody's and, ever used yeah. the word keys to refer to no. the color of somebody's skin. Yeah, that is that is an odd one, I, I, I have to say. I, well, don't... I keep wanting to think that there's something else more there. I mean, they, you have the concept of like ebony and ivory, white keys and black keys come together to make the, you know, the piano sounds great, but... I mean, I've, I've literally, you know, I've thought about this since I was 14 Did you think years old. He didn't old. say like, the color of his skin because he just thought that was too on the nose. I mean, yeah, exactly. Why, why not just do that? So it's, it's, um, I, I liked it as a kid because it was, you know, sort of socially aware and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, now it, it's, you know, Molly Crew is not, um, not someone I look up to to sort of inspire me, you know, the, the youth of America to revolution. I mean, they do have great sort of anti-authoritarian protest songs, but, um, you know, p pick a lane, Motley. You know, you got to stick to your sort of like, we're going to stand up just to the idea of old folks that are putting us down. Because it comes off sounding kind of hollow when they start actually picking a social cause. Mike? Yeah, I was reminded this week of, of the fact, I think this the intro of this song reminds me of Accept's, uh, you know, the band Accept, uh, Balls to the Wall in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Right? Because those guys knew each other and hung out back in the day. Actually, some of the guys from Accept sang backup vocals on Shout. Oh, so there you go. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. But then again, you know, to the generic listener, this song could work for you. It's a good closer in a way. You would enjoy it as a you know general you know rock fan. You know, is it a great song? Probably no. Uh, but you know, looking at it into some lyrics, I mean, there's certain things like you know, who wrote the Bible? You know, who set the laws? Are we left to history's flaws? This cold you know, perspective on things. Uh, but also too, there was um, something I didn't notice until today. Where did it go? Um, Oh, the, the last line, um, a tear of blood, you know, runs from my eye, but somehow I can never make you cry. I mean, that's that, that's, a, that's a visual. And it's a visual that harkens to the album cover that has the comedy and tragedy yeah. masks and has the drop of blood falling from the, uh, the eye. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So this is what I mean when I say that I think Motley Crue had the potential 
to be like the next Beatles, the next Rolling Stones, where they could have taken mm. their audience up to a higher level with them. Because I think this could have been a classic song and it could have been as good as Shout at the Devil or Live Wire. You know, I think the verses are really, really strong. And I think the chorus, which has some great shout vocals, by the way, um, that, yes. <laughs> that were, but it doesn't work. The chorus doesn't pay off in the way that you want it to. And there, there's a stronger chorus to be written that would really sell this song. And, and I think they just weren't in the right headspace to fully make the song what it could have been. Yeah, and, and also, you know, it, maybe in closing for the record, I mean, you know, at the same time, too, maybe the songs that we're talking about that, that we're so, you know, sort of troubled with and trying to figure out why they weren't better, still, you've got a strong cover song on, on side one, Smoking the Boys, and you've got a strong power ballad that sets standard for a lot of other bands later on. So maybe the things that, you know, we want to see improved in terms of the other parts of the record, you know, when when it came to the those two songs I just mentioned, they nailed it. Yeah. You know, they, I mean, you know, how many other bands after this have you seen like do cover songs and it failed? You know, like Badlands did, um, uh, I've seen Fire and I've seen Rain. You know, how many people know, you know, or Mr. Big did, you know, 30 Days in the Hole. You know, how many of those became hits? None of them. Right. None. Right. Yeah. Do you even know that they, they cover those songs? <laughs> Come on, you know, you know, try and try again. But like these guys did it, you know, they, you know somehow, you know, Maybe they weren't firing on all points in terms of their own songwriting in a lot of ways, or maybe they, they, they lucked into writing a ballad and, and doing a cool cover tune, but it worked and it sold the album. It was huge. And it, you know, those were the selling points and you know, that carried them into the next phase of their career. Okay, so 1985, Civic Arena, we all were there. What are your memories of the concert, John? Um, I, I remember being blown away. I mean, they, they just were so, I mean, Tommy Lee was, you know, he had some sort of crazy solo. I don't think it got to the point where he had the, he didn't have the thing. Did he have the thing that came up and like flew up or turned around? It, it just went, it went like yeah, uh, it did vertical. 90 degrees. Yeah, it did like 90 degrees. I remember that being like completely blown away. But then that fusing with memories of when it used to, you know, he did the roller coaster and that kind of stuff. Um, who opened? I don't even remember who opened. Y&T. That's right. I remember YMT and not liking YMT at all. Um, oh, 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 what are you oh, YMT killing me? You were great. Oh my god! No, I really was, okay. Like, so well, you know what? I didn't know oh. any of the material. I remember being like, I, I didn't either. I didn't either. But they, they, no, they really? okay. blew me away. All right, they blew me away. They were like, it was like much like when we saw Kiss or not? I'm sorry, Kicks open for Kiss on the Asylum. I remember that they and like being the, blown away by Kicks, but it didn't. Yes. Uh, I, re I remember Tommy Lee. Sorry, this is John's thing. I'll, John, you go. Yeah, ahead. no, I remember that. I remember, I mean, it was like a birthday present. It was right after my birthday. So I remember that was the gift. Uh, strangely enough, one of the weird things I remember is the review of the album that came out the day after where the, the uh, guy referred to fans of Motley Crue as oatmeal heads. So my dad <laughs> and stepmom started calling me their little oatmeal head. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Um, other than that, that's about all I remember. I remember like, it's sort of one of the first, I remember being so freaking loud and so abrasive, the guitar being so like, you know, abrasive, um, but awesome. You know what I mean? 
I remember halfway being deaf, like the, the next day, having that ringing in your head. Uh, when I went to go, you know, I used to deliver the post gazette. So I'd get up at like six in the morning uh, and go deliver the papers. I remember doing that. Um, but that's, I mean, yeah, it was a great show. It was also the one of the first times because Vince's voice didn't match what it sounded like on the record. Remember, that was mm -hmm. like one of the first times that I sort of noticed that they didn't have the same delivery live that they did on the record. There had been mm -hmm. other shows that I'd seen, but Kiss always managed to keep it pretty close. But yeah. uh, Motley Crue did not. They sounded very different than their record in terms of their performance. Mike, you, you've said that you don't remember much except uh, the one potential Tommy Lee drum thing. I still say that happened, but I do remember this. Um, I remember, you know, granted my dad is not, he's no longer with us, but I remember telling some story that I needed to go spend the night at, you know, a friend's house in order to be able to hang out with this friend and, you know, do something, whatever it was. Uh, but we went to uh, what was Kaufman's in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, uh, back when you could buy tickets at, you know, Kaufman's department store. So we waited overnight and listen to Boston, don't look back. And I was like, who's this band Boston? Oh, okay, I'll, I'll learn from that, you know, <clears throat> big time. So we spent the night, you know, in Kaufman's parking lot. When they opened up, we bought the tickets and I did the math, we had 19th row. Once we got in the door, we were probably like fifth in row, fifth in line to get the tickets. We went to the show and some friends, you know, my dad's condominium, uh, we attended the show. And again, it was bombastically loud, but I was, you know, how many times you go to the show and you see the opening band and you're bored with it? You know, you, you can't kind of say, why are these guys in the bill? They're not interesting. But I thought YMT was a great, great band. Like you could tell that, you know, when you look at the history now, it's no wonder whatever success they had, they, they had because they, they played on the circuit for years. Right. I remember knowing that. I remember knowing that they were yeah. sort of like your dad's heavy metal band because they had been around forever. And they were a band that I had always heard about, but never been really, they had never been played. I don't remember ever hearing them on DVE or anywhere else. No. Well, I, I think they, later on, I think they played, you know, songs like Lipstick and Leather and uh, you know, Keep on Running, which were from the uh, In Rock We Trust record. But, you know, I think um, it was either me and Chris Marshall or, or, or did, Dave, did you go to that show when, when uh, Y&P played the Key Club when I moved here? I don't think I, don't think I did, no. No, yeah, me and Christian Marshall, who was a drummer in, in, in uh, uh, Dame Fortune, we, you know, we watched the show and I had my tickets, well, somewhere's here, I have a ticket stub that's autographed. But I went to those guys and said, hey, you guys are awesome. Uh, I talked to Leonard Hayes and uh, Phil Cannamore and Dave, uh, Dave Lucarelli, Dave uh, Manichetti. And I, they, I said, listen, I saw you guys on, on Theater of Pain tour and, and the drummer went to the basement and said, oh, yeah, he saw us on Theater of Pain. <laughs> you know, so they knew that like that was like it's, as big as they got, which is a shame, you know, because they tried later on. But, you know, point being, the story is killer opening band, even killer headlining band, uh, super loud, super bombastic. And I remember like just being blinded by lights the whole time. There were so many lights in the stage. So it's funny that you say that because that is one of the things that I remember too, is, is the lights were so bright that like you, it was like looking directly into a Polaroid flash cube. Yeah, right. And, and that was totally directly out of that theater of cruelty essay that Nikki yeah. read and inspired him for the tour. Yeah. It was that way because yeah. you couldn't see anything. I was on the floor, you know, 19 rows back. I, like, I can't see the damn man. I want to see them, you know? Yeah. Um, so my memories, um, 
I was amazed that this show even happened because there were so many rumors that the band's going to break up or they're going to get another, you know. So this was like the return of the Conquering Heroes, right? Because they had last played Pittsburgh in a 3,500-seat theater. Now they were headlining a sold-out arena show. And I remember this was maybe the wildest crowd that I've ever seen at a rock show because back then if you were the bad kid who was in middle school and yet already a hardcore drug addict or alcoholic <laughs> or violent or whatever motley crew was your favorite band right yeah. so i literally saw like two fights break out like before we even got into the arena they were just like in the park like people were just wailing on yeah. each other and then you know like a guy like I once we're in the arena, like there's a guy getting wheeled out of the arena on a stretcher by paramedics like coming up. The guy that's sitting in front of us seems to be passed out like for the entire show. He doesn't move. He could be dead for all I know. No, that but, was, like, this, was that the one where we walked in and there was a kid like literally sit laying in his own vomit in front of the. the yeah, I think so. I mean, was, it was, I remember seeing that and being like, well, that's horrible. And he was such like skinny kid. <laughs> with like these fake leather gloves with the fingers cut off. I totally remember that. That was one of the most traumatic images that has burned into my mind as that kid. I think that was the show too. It was a tough crowd. Let's yeah. just say that. You know, it was it was a tough crowd. And then I remember when when the okay, so when the the lights go out, this is the part I'm not a hundred percent sure of how much is my memory and how much of this is real. In my memory, there was a curtain in front of a giant wall, okay? And when the show started, the wall hydraulically came down and Motley Crue was attached to the opposite side of the wall. Yes. And then they, and they do you yes, remember it, that? Yeah, no, it was similar to, uh, if you look at footage of the Rolling Stones uh, 75 tour, it was called the, uh, the Electric Lotus Tour or whatever it was. And, and like the stage unfolded like a Lotus and Mick, Nick Mars, Mick Jagger appeared like on the top edge of the, the lotus flower, and yeah, it was right. And they were on the like the edge of yes. the lotus, and and as it as it went from being a wall to being a yes. floor, mm-hmm. which was unbelievable. Was, yeah. I'd never seen anything. And like where did that, that all go once they got you know the stage unfurled in a way? It was an amazing presentation. Well, so then it became the floor of the stage. If you yeah. see those bootlegs oh, okay. of the show okay. online, but that was spectacular. Yeah. And then they played. Okay, so the, first the lights go out, they play in the beginning, then they do the spectacular stage entrance, and then they p- go right into Looks That yeah. Kill. Right, I remember that was weird because we are like, why are you playing in the beginning and going into Looks That Kill? But yeah, yeah, because... Right, yeah. but Theater of Pain had just, I mean, had just come out, yeah. right? So Smoking in the Boys Room was a hit, but it wasn't as big a hit as it was going to be. Home Sweet Home hadn't even been released as a single no. yet. So the biggest song that they had at the time was Looks That Kill. Mm -hmm. And they opened with it, which to me is one of the ballsiest moves I've ever seen an arena level band do. Usually their biggest song, they do it for the final encore. They make you wait for the entire show. And, you know, later on Motley would always do that and they milk it. You know, it's like, ah, you want to hear Looks That Kill? You know, like, like, so to open with your biggest song at the time, I mean, just sheer balls. Yeah. Yeah. So any final thoughts? Theater of Pain. No. 
I mean, it's funny that the, the show was much more, was much better than the album. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was really, I mean, it, it's, it's funny because the, the first Motley Crue album I had was actually their second album, which got me into their first album. And then the show that made me really sold me on the band was actually for an album that I didn't really like. You know what I mean? But I mean, I did at the time, but it's, it's interesting how I'm always playing catch up with them. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll conclude by saying that, you know, think of other albums that came out around the time. You had Kiss Analyze, right? You had Doc and Under Lock and Key. You had you know, Rat, Invasion of Your Privacy. You know, but uh, those those records, I think I probably listened to this record more so out of the other ones in a way. I don't, I don't know why that was. I, it's something about this record spoke to me. I liked it. I, you know, I wouldn't say it's the best record, but it's one of my favorites. And again, it's not my favorite. I mentioned that was, you know, Shout Out the Devil, but it, I have no problem putting this this CD in the car and it can get me where I, where I need to go. You know, for maybe it's just because it was a soundtrack of my life at the time and it worked, you know, but mm -hmm. you know, if that's my personal experience, so be it. But I, I like it as a record and I've learned from it and I've used a lot of the things they do on this record in terms of writing songs and writing guitar solos and stuff. And it's influential. So, you know, to me, that's a great record, you know? It's smarter yeah. than, lyrically speaking, it stays interesting, so it becomes smarter than, I mean, I would almost say it's better songwriting than Animalize, in terms of at least lyrically, and it's better, like, lyrics than, say, that Dokken album, you know what I mean? There's yeah. more going oh, on. without a doubt, yeah. yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. Just, it's a smarter, it's a smarter album. It's still not a you know, it's still not the, their best album, but it's it's still a smarter album than a lot of stuff that was going out then. Yeah, and smarter also mean, it could also mean you know, like they always say, like heavy groove. It's it's kind of got yeah. those Aerosmith mm -hmm. things. Those you know, deep, you know, nobody ever says like, who do you listen to? Who's your favorite band? And, and they say Deep Purple. You know, but there's a lot of Deep Purple in this record. But there's also a lot of Aerosmith. Yeah. And the cool part is the Aerosmith mm -hmm. part. You know, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But the, the stock stuff that they did with the Deep Purple stuff, sell that with an Aerosmith type groove. And you've got, you know, a, a cool album, in my opinion, you know? Yeah. It's not my favorite album of theirs, but as much as I recognize it has certain limitations, it's an album that whenever I go back to it and I listen to it, it feels fresh to me. Yeah. It's almost like I'm discovering it for the first time all over again. And, you know, there's something to be said for an album that can make you feel that way mm -hmm. after all these years. So, all right. We will join you next week. For girls, girls, girls. Rev up your engines, man. It's going to be a wild <laughs> ride. <laughs>